0: properly mitigated and approved by the uh, appropriate government entity, then those companies can perform on classified contracts as well. In fact, there's uh, roughly about 150 companies, U.S. companies, that are foreign owned that operate under majority mitigation agreements. Those are known as a special security agreement, a voting trust, or a proxy agreement. Including some Japanese companies, which which was addressed at the previous panel, Mr. has mentioned that uh, there's, there's not a lot of Japanese companies, but there's 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 probably about a half a dozen uh, ba- based on my due diligence. That's not a public record, but uh, I've gathered some statistics over my over the years. Okay, and so the the. Uh, there's four cognizant security agencies that have responsible for standing up their industrial security programs. The Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the, uh, and the uh, Office of Director of National Intelligence. W- within the DOD, uh, the Defense Security Service is, is responsible for oversight, uh, of clean industry primarily. They're, they're obviously, there are other government agencies that have industrial secu- security programs, and they, uh, they, they're smaller programs. DSS is actually re- responsible for 13,000 clear facilities, including, as I said, there's a small, small degree of foreign-owned U.S. companies as well. So in addition to DSS sponsoring companies, or, or I should say reviewing companies that are sponsored for facility clearances and then adjudicating it, and then if everything is meets uh, meets the regulations, they issue clearances, they also have responsibility for conducting reviews of companies. And uh, those reviews are generally done on a, a yearly basis, sometimes longer, depending on the security posture of the company. Uh, with respect to U.S. foreign or uh, foreign U.S. owned companies, those reviews are always done on a yearly basis. But it's surprising that many of the of those companies have outstanding security programs. And uh, it, it, one of the key takeaways is is that in order to maintain your clearance, you have to have a good security program because it can be taken away. Which and there's repercussions, but I'll I'll address those in a in some slides that are coming up. Now, another important uh, development is that the Defense Security Service is moving away from their standard uh, way of conducting a security review. Bef- currently, it's based on a body of regulations, the National Industrial Security Program Operating Manual. There's hundreds and hundreds of regulations that apply, and, is, and, and that's what the review is based on. However, DSS wants to move away from that method and start conducting reviews on, uh, the, th- the threat to the specific company's technologies. And DSS wants to work with the companies to, uh, identify the threat and then also identify what the vulnerabilities are and then come up with some countermeasures as well. So it's, the program has just started and it's, uh, there's been a couple pilot programs conducted and they actually, those pilot programs were uh, conducted, uh, uh, at a number of companies that operate under special security agreements and proxy agreements. But it's, it, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's just starting off and it, it's going to take a, a little time for that new, uh, methodology to be, uh, adopted by DSS and, and obviously embraced by, uh, Clayton Industry as well. So, the, the key takeaways are, uh, as I said, you, you, companies need to comply. It's very, very important. If they don't re- comply, then there's, there's repercussions, and there's serious repercussions. Number one, a facility clearance could be invalidated. So if your clearance is invalidated, that means you can no longer perform uh, on classified contracts unless the government contracting agency okays it. You also can no longer bid on potential classified contracts. And it can take quite some time to get your clearance reinstated. In fact, it's 90 days or longer. So that's, that's an incentive to, to definitely stay in compliance if you ask a company that, that has had their clearance invalidated. And of course, then there's the most, the most serious, uh, repercussion would be that the clearance uh, is administratively terminated, which means then the, the company is, uh, out of the classified market. They can no longer perform on classified contracts, and obviously that's a black mark on their record, and it would probably take them quite some time to obtain a facility security clearance in the future. They'd have to do some uh, serious adjustments to to get back into the the program. So with that, I think that it's very important for the, the Japanese industry to to move forward to uh, uh, establishing an industrial security program within their country, and obviously that it's going to take some time because uh, if you look at the U.S. program, it started in 1951 and it evolved over the years into a very robust program. But uh, it's, uh, it's a step in the, in the right direction, and it will allow uh, the industries to actually exchange classified information between themselves and enter into classified contracts, which I think will... Be very very beneficial for all in 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 the long term.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank Norman. you. I've got a host of questions I want to ask you, but let I want to hear from Steve Ganyard first. Uh, Steve is uh, president of. How do you say that? Evacent. Evacent? Evacent. Evacent Global Advisors. I see it on the card. I write to the guy in the emails, but I've never pronounced the name of his company. Evacent Global Advisors, which is a strategic and management consulting firm serving clients in government driven industries. Uh, he's worked in a number of areas uh, besides the defense area, including unconventional oil and gas. Uh, He's co-founder of the China Beige Book, Mm -hmm. which a lot of us know and Mm -hmm. use, thank him for that. Uh, uh, He's also previously served as Chief of Staff to the Counselor for the Secretary of State. And uh, in Marine Corps, he served as the military assistant to the Deputy Security of Defense as well as in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And as a fighter pilot, Mr. Ganyard received Two decorations for combat valor. I guess you're not going to tell us which conflict that was. World War II. <laughs> World War II. Yeah, <laughs> Damn, I was hoping it was. I thought was going to hold out for World War One. <laughs> <laughs> you and Eddie were going, right. going up against that the up against that's John Glenn's
2: days. So. <laughs>
1: Uh, graduate of Northwestern University and Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's published articles and opinion pieces in New York Times and elsewhere and professional journals. I did turn that on, did I? Um, he's also a member of the Bretton Woods Committee and also serves as consultant to the Institute
2: of Defense Analyses. Steve, thank you. Good afternoon. This is uh, this is a tough duty here, being the last guy in the last day. So I'll try to uh, I'll be a little bit provocative here. Uh, I have um, I have uh, my my uh, my talk will be full of uh, personal opinions. So I hope I don't offend anybody, but uh, I will offer my personal opinions that's based on uh, on our commercial practice. I have both Japanese and uh, and U.S. clients that we work in Japan. I'm back from uh, Japan just on Friday. So if my voice is a little ho- hoarse, that's why, uh, along with some colleagues here that are that are in the uh, that are in the in the room so let me uh, let me start out with some uh, some thoughts on uh, challenges for the Japanese defense technology development. And most of my comments today will be, uh, directed towards or with, uh, with my Japanese friends in mind because I think this is really an unequal dialogue. This is, this is, uh, Japan is interested in more industrial development, defense industrial development with the United States. Uh, there are some reasons why that is good for the alliance. Uh, but in terms of incentivizing, which we discussed, uh, on the previous panel, incentivizing industry and incentivizing the U.S to, uh, partake or to participate more in that relationship, uh, really the burden for that rests with the Japanese. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, some assumptions and some, some, um, some beliefs on, on where we stand in the relationship. Um, Bluntly, Japanese industry is not cost-competitive on defense articles. Um, the problem is that, that uh, the Ministry of Finance every year tends to craft a budget with the industrial base and jobs in mind uh, and to ensure that jobs and social stability are the primary uh, are the primary uh, factor. Uh, so there's never been any competitive discipline to Japanese industry in the way that there have been in many other countries countries which means that all of the all of the uh, forcing functions of profit and loss and efficiency uh, have been uh, have been uh, uh, not sacrificed but have been put aside for uh for uh, uh development and maintenance of the uh, Japanese defense industrial base such as it is uh Japan also has few indigenous capabilities and systems that are qualitatively competitive around the world. Uh there are uh the Soryu submarine is uh, is right up there as an example that is is globally competitive. Uh lost a, a tough uh a tough competition to the Australians or to the French in Australia, but it's still a great submarine. But other than that there aren't too many things that international clients are clamoring for that are purely Japanese indigenously capable uh created. Um, Japanese industry, I think, does not have the effective mechanisms for evaluating and pursuing go-to-market fundamentals for defense exports. Most of these firms, because they 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 wait for an order, so the government uh, uh, tells them what they want them to build. And they either go out under license production and do a build to print, uh, or or develop something indigenously. But these companies that are terrific companies, say a, you know a Hitachi or a Toshiba, which are top 100, top 500 in the world, that have great international business, their defense uh, their defense units have never had to compete, and so you don't find that same competitive DNA within the defense units of some really really terrific international uh, Japanese companies. Uh, I, I – again, a lot of opinion here, but I think that the 3P changes have been in name only. Um been following this for, for several years. I think that uh, Prime Minister Abe had a great idea uh, on changing the 3Ps, and, and he's got an overarching vision of where he wants to see the government go uh, and the nation go. But uh, I still find that with my Japanese clients and with my U.S. clients that there's a bureaucratic gordian knot trying to get through defense exports. Uh, There's been a lot of push from our friends at Medi to to create dual-use technologies, which would make the uh, clearance process easier. Uh, Dual-use, that's nice, but uh, at some point you have to fess up and say, we need a military-only capability, and we've got to be able to figure out how we're going to do that. And if we want to export, we need to figure out how we're going to do that as well. Um, I think that industry lacks an export or co-develop incentives outside of government Japan initiatives. So industry itself, if I'm, if I'm the head of, say, MHI or MC, and I'm, I'm the CEO, and I have a million yen to spend on some new investment, why would I spend that on something in the defense sector where I know that the government's going to limit me to, say, 4 to 6% profit margin above and beyond my costs? When I could go somewhere else and, and do something internationally and I can look at 10, 20, 30 percent margin. So there's a lack of incentive for, for the uh, Japanese industry as itself. And there's also a risk that the Japanese government has yet to take on to help its industry, I think. Uh, most of the indigenous defense programs are, are driven by industrial based management, by threat driven. So if you look at uh, aircraft such as the P1, it's a totally indigenous airplane. Um, which means that it's very, very expensive. It's essentially a handmade airplane with expensive Japanese components. Now, that's fine if Japan wants to go out and, and, develop an airplane. Uh, but they're gonna, they're gonna be able to build one for three if they were gonna build, buy P-8s off the line from, from Boeing. Uh, if they want to buy uh, Apache helicopters and they want to pay to have them reassembled in Japan, it's going to cost them two or three times what it would cost to buy it off the line. So this idea of creating jobs of industrial-based production uh, means that you get lesser quality goods uh, that are not in demand. The C2 and the P1 are going to have a very difficult time being sold anywhere o- outside of Japan. Prime Minister Abe has taken on the role of... Defense market BD, uh, and he is he is the best business development person in Japan right now. We saw that he took a personal interest uh, with Prime Minister Abbott in Australia, and he uh, personally tried to push the Soryu through, uh, unfortunately unsuccessfully when Mr. Abbott lost his job. Uh, but he did a great effort with the uh, trying to move Soryu into Australia. You've seen that he's also taken the personal initiative within inside, uh, India and trying to move the U.S. to even though there's no Indian requirement for the U.S. to, uh, they've come, come a long way and they may yet actually sell U.S. to. So it's, it's, it's not a good sign when your best BD guy is your prime minister. He has other jobs. He has other responsibilities. Uh, it's time for, for Japanese industry to take up the mantle on the cyber side we see uh Balkanized authorities for cybersecurity uh it, this this is um again this this exists in any bureaucracy it exists in any government uh and the japanese uh japanese industry and japanese government have not had the shocks to the system i'd say that the us government has had that has forced the us government into breaking down those those stovepipes and beginning to do cross departmental cross agency sorts of cybersecurity requirements there's also a lack of, of funding for for government Japan cybersecurity. There was a cyber cyber defense command. And they threw 100 people at it, but in terms of general cyber uh, development on the defense side, uh, it's woefully underfunded. Uh, on the on the, I want to give one example on the Olympics. I talked to the head of the uh, the previous head of the Japanese 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. And um I said, uh, so you have responsibility for cybersecurity? And he said, I sure do. Uh and I said, uh, do you have any money for that? He goes, I don't. I said, Do you have any authority to force that? And he said, I don't. Um we had uh some folks that were sponsored by um I won't say who, but a large government uh, uh, entity within Japan to look at transportation cybersecurity. And so because my firm does a lot of cyber practice, they came to us and talked to us about what we thought in terms of cybersecurity for transportation. And uh, we had a great discussion, and we said, um, so what's your timeline? And they said, well, we're under contract, and so that contract, uh, we have to work up until that contract ends. And I said, well, when does that end? They said three months prior to the Olympics. So I said, you're going to just do a two-year study, and three months part of the Olympics, you're going to drop on your on your sponsors, hear all the things that we need to fix. So it's that sense of urgency. It's the idea that that this truly is an, a, a national threat that needs to be taken just as seriously as a threat to the Senkakus uh, is something on the cyber side that uh, uh, I, I don't think Japan's come to grips with yet. Um, I, to, to Norm's point, I think he was he was uh, making a good point here. There, there's no NISPOM. In Japan, uh, I will, I will submit that I think that's the biggest detriment right now to U.S.-Japan defense relations is the lack of a NISPOM. Uh, there's a low U.S. government and industry confidence in Japan's ability, uh, on the industrial side to protect intellectual property. Uh, only now is, is Japan as some very highly classified programs like the F-35 begin to make their way into the Japanese um, uh, hopper. Uh, they're just now coming to grips with uh, both cyber and industrial protocols. But these are still limited to programs with U.S. involvement. So F-35, SM-3 Block 2A development, places where you have to get security clearances to work on this, on this kind of, uh, U.S. equipment. So right now it's a very painful process where it's on a by name basis having to clear people into a program. This is, this is no way to run a railroad and we've got to fix this if we want to improve the U.S.-Japan defense industrial relationship. Um, I think there's also a problem on the cyber side with an inability to address liability, uh, and this idea of an inability to address the legal liabilities of cybersecurity and cyber protection is really holding back Japanese readiness, not just military readiness, but readiness for uh, intelligence sharing, Uh, And for disaster response and in a place like Japan which is is in many ways a disaster supermarket uh, Fixing those kinds of things uh, are important to the uh, to the people of Japan Okay let me go on to some of the, co- the uh, industrial co-development challenges. Again, these are—we'll talk a little bit about problems, then I'll offer some solutions here in the next two slides. So, co-development and co-production are obviously, as, as, as we've talked about today, are challenging activities in Japan. Successful co-development and co-production requires sharing intellectual property and manufacturing capabilities. That's that's a given. That's just stating the obvious. And success of these initiatives will depend on technology levels offered by Japanese companies, the strength of the Japanese industrial security program, and technology. that's approved by the U.S. Right now, U.S. industry has little direct incentive. I mean, people have been hinting around it today, but if you are are a large U.S. prime, and your Japanese uh, counterparts are coming to you and saying, we want to share, there's really not much other than money to incentivize them. And so I constantly talk to my Japanese friends. I say, wow, we went to talk to Boeing or Lockheed or Northrop and we wanted to do this and they didn't really want to do that. Well, there are reasons for that. There's really no incentive. Until Japan can begin to share, protect, uh, and and cooperate in ways that ensure both uh, industrial uh, security for the intellectual property, for security of uh, sensitive intelligence on the US side, those incentives will not get any better than they are today. Uh, I can also tell you that my U.S. clients are very concerned about intellectual property and co-development and co-production activities. Most of this, excuse me, most of this is a hangover from um, from countries on the other side of uh, to the to the west of uh, to the west of Japan, so we say, uh, where where uh, intellectual property is not valued and uh, and intellectual property threft, theft theft uh, even from uh, supposed allies is is quite uh, is quite common. Uh, Third-party transfers, anti-tampering, and end-use monitoring need particular attention. These are, in many ways, these are issues that the Japanese government is just now coming to grips with. So I'm not being critical here because this is a whole new world, and there's so much that Jap- Japan has to catch up to so quickly. So these are, these are challenges. They're out there, uh, and there's a role for the US government to play. Third-party transfers, especially for ITAR and CCL items, uh, will be challenging in a co-development and co-production environment. Uh, internal Japanese bureaucracy disagreements on end-use monitoring leads continue to be problematic. The disconnects between the MFA, between METI, between the MOD, uh, and between anybody else that has a say in something that gets shipped overseas or has a relationship overseas continue to uh, lack a coordination, an internal coordination mechanism. Now, I know the NSS, I, I visited the NSS last week, and, and I, I know that they know that there are some shortcomings here, uh, but there's got to be a, a, a more of a, of a set process here so the Japanese industry doesn't get stymied at the first turn. Um, uh, Japanese anti-tamper, we had a chance to talk to our friends from Medi about uh, six months ago, and this is something, obviously, that's just now becoming important to Japan or as important to Japan as it is to the United States, and that is making sure that you know where your technology goes when it goes to a third party, what happens to it, who's using it for what purposes, and making sure that it doesn't go anywhere that you don't want it to go. And if it does, that you're able to make sure that it's somehow voided and, and won't, be, uh, won't be used in pernicious ways or ways that are contrary to your own national interests. Um, my my U.S. colleagues tell me that uh, that oftentimes their Japanese partners want technology released on co-development and co-production items before they know what they actually want to do. So it's give us your stuff, and then we'll talk about what we want to do. So probably not the right approach, uh, but it's a challenge for the U.S. or for Japanese industry in meeting the technology security and licensing requirements. There are also stovepipe impediments to information sharing in both the government and the private sector in both the U.S. and Japan. Uh, A friend of mine who was in a recent conference in Japan, especially on the cybersecurity side, said they came away from that conference saying this is the single biggest problem is the stovepiping and the the impediments to information sharing between U.S. industry, U.S. government, Japanese industry, and Japanese government. Um, I, this is a bit off-topic, but it's something that always needs to be in the back of people's minds, and that is in, that license production is pernicious to any aspiration to create a competitive, globally competitive uh, defense industrial base. License production is is Stalin would approve. It is not capitalist. It does not inject capitalist discipline into the into the uh, into the defense base. And until that discipline and that competitive spirit comes into the Japanese defense base, uh, it'll be very very tough to make globally competitive products. Excuse me. Okay, here are some prescriptions on how do we fix some of these problems. First thing is industrial security and protection of IP must be key pillars of the future of the U.S.-Japan defense relationship. This includes both Japanese government, Japanese industry, and academia. Uh, for those of you um, who are more expert in things Japan than I, um, I'm told that in academia there's still quite a... a uh a strain of pacifism that uh, is resistant to, um, shall we say, the, the same sorts of research and development activities that many U.S. institutions would undertake. And so, uh, in some ways, the uh, Japanese industry is losing out on the academic and the research-based kinds of capabilities that the U.S. has. At some point, it'll be important to pull that back in, but being able to to uh, to have uh, security and, and protection of IP within those uh, academic institutions will be important. Important as well, uh, Classification levels. Uh, Japan obviously needs the ability to do classification and do personnel clearance. Uh, right now, as I said, it's being done, uh, my understanding, on the F-35 program on a, on a person-by-person, case-by-case basis. And so there's got to be something put in place, uh, something like what the U.S. or any of, uh, of the Five Eyes countries have in terms of security clearance and personnel reliability uh, maintenance. Um, aggressive cybersecurity and cyber training, uh, is, is just a given. Uh, a defense, uh, is the, uh, in this case is, is the best, uh, offense. And, uh, there are industry concerns. I think in the U.S., the government of Japan does not take cyber training seriously enough to protect proprietary information or statistics. And, and I think what I'm, what we need here is a NISPOM with Japanese characteristics. And I'll talk a little bit here what that, what that might look like and who should help. I think the government of Japan must be encouraged to take a, f- a full advantage of the three Ps relaxation. It's um, it's only been around for a year and a half, two years now, and so it's it's quite understandable that there would be problems uh, in getting it off the ground. Uh, again, so so my 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 criticisms here are very mild because I understand how difficult this is. In some ways, Japanese industry is hesitant to embrace the freedoms that it's been granted, uh, and that goes back to talking about incentivization. They aren't incentivized to do it at four percent. 4 to 6% profit margins and the inability to export. Called the virtuous circle. When you begin to export defense articles into various markets, you're going to look at somewhere between 2 and 10x profit margins of what you would be making with, with your sovereign government. So the only way to begin to develop globally competitive defense articles is to plow those profits back into your IRAD, into your internal R&D cycle, and begin to develop the next best thing. Now, the good part is that that next best thing also goes to the defense of Japan, but it also allows you to stay globally competitive. You look at some of the countries around the world, such as Israel, you look at uh, Singapore, uh, you look at uh, Norway, Sweden. These are all countries that have used exports to generate their own capabilities and to, to create a very robust and globally competitive defense capability. Um, Japanese industry still relies heavily on the uh, government of Japan to advocate for its industry. Until there's true business development and there's true uh, desire by various Japanese companies to, to branch out into the, um, into the uh, wild world of, of competitive uh, defense sales, that's not going to change. Uh, I actually had a, um, a Japanese company I was talking to. They said, yeah, we want to come to the U.S. and we want to sell into this market, but we don't want any competitors. And I thought they were kidding. I looked at them and I went, I went, huh. And then I went, oh, you're not laughing. And they, uh, so, okay, um, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Um, so, because of this and because of the challenges that Japan industry has, I think that initially, that the government of Japan and the government of the U.S. need to take the lead on industry-to-industry collaboration. We're seeing that, but they also need to do things like they need to share risk. The Japanese government can do this in various ways. They can they can help with uh, with some of the R&D through through uh, through various research organizations. They can do things like uh, uh, fun- funding. There are all sorts of funding mechanisms that can help reduce the risk because this is a big change for Japanese industry, and they do need some they do need some help. Um the Government of Japan, I think, must reconcile the Japanese foreign policy objectives with third party transfer and end use monitoring requirements um, I will give you a true example, and i won 't tell you the um Japanese uh bureaucracy that I talked to at a japanese uh, a Japanese client that was asked to uh to uh approach a, a Middle East country um and uh and to see if they could uh sell into that Middle East country. So we went and we talked to this j- Japanese uh, bureaucracy and they said good to go and two minutes later two months later we went back and um and said, okay, we're ready to go and they said, nope, now you can't do it. And we said, why? And they said, because uh Denmark put a sanction on this company in the European Union. And we said and how does that apply to Japan? Um, and, and so the, the difficulty of a Japanese industry committing to a particular course of action or a long lead-term development of a particular capability needs to have some of that risk, some of that foreign policy risk removed from the, the equation. OK, let's talk about cybersecurity. How do we, how do we improve cybersecurity to improve the relationship? I will say, personal opinion, the single biggest impediment to the future of U.S.-Japan security relationship is Japan's lack of an overarching industrial and cybersecurity protocols. Whether this is industrial uh, cooperation or intelligence sharing, Japan must create the sort of confidence building measures that the U.S. will appreciate and begin to open up some of the IP, some of the classified capabilities, and most importantly, intelligence sharing. If Japan ever has an aspiration to be the sixth eye, this is the first step. Cybersecurity confidence building measures. Here are some things that, from a recent uh, U.S.-Japan cybersecurity conference where they talked about. Here are some things that Japan could do. Strong authentication across the board, industry and defense, Device, device hardening, Reducing attack surfaces, that's cyberspeak for fewer, fewer points of entry of fewer vulnerabilities uh, with, uh, within the, uh, within the uh, ecosystem of, of your uh, organization. Alignment of cybersecurity and computer, uh, computer network defense pr- providers. So part of this goes to the, uh, the, the inability to have that discussion between industry and, um, and government to talk about threats in near real time uh, in ways that they can be dealt with by both, uh, both sides of the equation. Um, I do know that uh, Japan has done a good job in that they have uh, uh, appointed a new director of cyber policy, uh, I think the problem is, is that person is in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, as you know, the NISPOM in the U.S. is cross-cutting, CIA, Department of Energy, Department of Defense, Commerce. Everybody has a seat at the table. So if you're going to do a NISPOM with Japanese characteristics, it has to be inter-agencies. The authorities have to be clear, and there has to be somebody who has the hammer to enforce the policies that are implemented uh, by, by the government itself. Uh, legal frameworks and other procedures and regulations should incentivize secure sharing and collaboration. Um, r- recognizing that – I say this to my Japan friends. It, it sounds like I'm beating you up, but I'm not. The U.S. The U.S. has learned these lessons over and over the hard way. Uh, you look at most of the Chinese technology that's coming out today, the J20, the J31. You look at the PL15, and you can point to the server that it was stolen from in the United States. So this is no longer, this is no longer just a, a U.S. problem. This is a U.S.-Japan alliance pro- problem because we say, face the same threat in the Pacific. So learn from us, learn from the painful lessons that we have, and it's a lot easier and it's a lot cheaper. Uh, Operational technology and weapon systems, uh, mission systems, platforms, and IT have interactive vulnerabilities that must be addressed together, focusing on mission assurance. I think Jim Armington talked about this earlier, this idea of the Internet of Things. Well, Internet of Things ought to scare the heck out of you because so much of it is cyber insecure. Um, if we're going to do this, b- b- most people think that this is the future in C4ISR, and if we're going to do joint C4ISR, if we're going to c- protect the commons of the, the Nansei Shoto and the East China Sea uh, and all of the southern approaches, if we are going to do that together, then it's going to take a lot of peace parts that will look like the Internet of Things, and being able to make all of that cyber secure across two countries. Two militaries and two civilian authorities is a real challenge, but if you don't, I guarantee you that whoever the adversary may be, let's say China, they will find a way in, and we will find out the hard way once the shooting starts. Um, It's a platitude, I know, but both governments need to share information more quickly and do it. It's just, it's there. We just need to do it. Hardened government and industry workforce, it's not just the cyber specialists. It's the first and last line is is defense, and it's the weakest link. Everybody down, it's not all your sysadmins, it's not your Edward Snowdens, it's the people, it's your secretaries, it's your low-level workers, it's everybody up to the president of the companies, and it requires a cultural change. It's requiring now a cultural change in U.S. defense industry. We're quite a ways along. It's going to require that same sort of cultural change and the leadership that's concomitant with that change in Japan as well. On the cyber side, prioritizing defense, looking for opportunities such as the um, multilateral info sharing agreement so that it's, these misses can be done in, in multilateral ways that, that um, all are all part of the US cert. So I just wanted to give you an example of one way that this can all be shared. So before I lose my voice here, let me um, just come up with a couple of, of, of final thoughts. Um, I think that the industrial intelligence future relationship uh, between the U.S. and Japan will rest on Japanese initiative. Right now, the incentive uh, to do so is not as strong as it should be within the United States, and this is Japan's future. Uh, it's yes, it's the U.S.-Japan alliance, but uh, the incentives need to be created, and the effort needs to come uh, needs to come from Japan first. Both U.S. and Japan industry have to be incentivized by their governments with shared risk and joint programs. They're just gonna, it's a, we're, we're getting out of we're getting and to get Japanese industry out of this out of this managed economy and into the competitive, uh, globally competitive defense market. We need to help them along and do some things that will incentivize their CEOs to spend that next yen on something that would be in the defense of Japan and not in some gold mine in Mongolia. Um, and finally, uh, I think that a Japanese NISPOM is the best first step. Uh, there's roles here. I've heard from my Japanese friends that they get, you know, DISA comes in over here, and ATL comes over here, and OSD policy comes in over here, and they don't get a coherent, tell us what you should do. We're getting all these different, it's complex, it's difficult. I think that U.S. industry seize the opportunity of a very technologically sophisticated uh... uh... society in japan it's probably going to be our most important ally going forward in the pacific uh... i think that that industry has a role here has an incentive if they look beyond the uh, look beyond the next quarter in terms of profit to uh, to begin to help japanese industry put those 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 uh, foundational blocks in place that will allow japan to be a better partner to be a trusted uh, uh, partner and to be able to share at the highest levels of classification and industry thank you very much
1: Um, I'm going to make you uh, not rest your voice quite yet, Steve, because I have a first question for you, and then I'm going to turn to my question for Norman. Um, No one is going to accuse you of having looked at the the future of U.S.-Japan defense technology cooperation through rose-colored glasses. Um, And perhaps given the kind of sort of optimistic discussions that we've been having this morning and this afternoon, uh, and the assumptions that some of those optimism rests on, some might say that parts of your talk represent a kind of dash of cold water on some of tough, tough love tough love <laughs> I like that um, but here 's my question for you to think about, and that is you 've got on the one hand you 've got a let 's say a corporate culture in the Japanese defense industry which is which is uh, highly anti-competitive, because of the nature in which that industry has been built over the decades. On the other hand, you also have a defense uh, industry which is – leaks like a sieve. and has all kinds of industrial security problems, from cyber all the way through to intellectual property and transfer of technology issues, et cetera. Which comes first? In other words, is it the case that the Japanese government could enforce, let's say, the institutions that shape a industrial security regime that would then make Japanese industry more competitive, starting in the United States, they would then, f- then encourage and incentivize a more competitive outlook and to sort of see the poss- – and, and grow out the possibilities for defense export trade and all of that can follow from a really robust defense trade regime? <laughs> or is it the case that what you really need to do is a shake up at the top to bring in people who are maybe executives brought in from the commercial divisions of some of these companies, like Toshiba, Hitachi, and Toy- or people from Toyota, and then you – and then what they'll realize is is if we're going to be competitive in this, we're going to have to adopt uh, much more stringent cybersecurity rules, we're going to have to look much more closely at building a kind of interagency effort in terms of industrial security. Which one – which direction would pay off the most
2: in the future? Yeah, that's quite uh, – that's um, that's a difficult question. Um, I think uh, the bad news is that the Chinese are belligerent and the Chinese are threatening world peace uh, around the world. But that's also the good news, too. Um, I was at uh, PACOM uh, last week uh, and then a couple had a couple days in, in Tokyo talking about integrated air and missile defense. Uh, the Chinese threat will continue to grow. It's not going to go away. They will become more belligerent. Um, I think that there's a military clash of some kind going to happen somewhere. It would probably be most like the Chinese and not take on the U.S. directly, but rather take on uh, one of the uh, smaller countries in the region. So uh, I think that uh, the Japanese government was quite shaken up by the uh, – flying the H6 bombers around Taiwan, showing how vulnerable the southern approaches have become. I think that Mr. Duterte has also shaken up uh, both the U.S. and the Japanese, showing uh, the increased vulnerability of the southern reaches. Uh, so the Chinese threat, in a way, is going to be a forcing function for the Japanese government to begin to take some of these challenges a bit more seriously and exert a bit more Leadership. Um, uh, again, I, I am I am a friend of Japan, and, and when I do say these things, I say them tough love. And so, uh, when I'm over there, when I'm talking to to, to Japanese uh, industry and Japanese government, uh, I think they are becoming coming to the realization that there needs to be somebody who will step up and exert the leadership. Uh, within the, uh, within the government. Now, whether that comes from the NSS, whether it comes from some sort of a, uh, of a legislative, uh, Goldwater-Nichols, uh, their joint staff is still just now getting the say it should with a prime minister, uh, the ability for the joint staff or for the NSS to actually direct kinds of capabilities, uh, that are truly joint and in the best interest. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't think something—it's—it's um, it's not Japanese to come in and fire a bunch of people or bring in a bunch of movers and shakers. So I—I'm I, not going to—I'm not going to um, uh, butt heads with—with with the cultural. Um, uh, proclivities, but I do think that there's an opportunity here, uh, as the Chinese threat grows for the Japanese government. And this is everybody. This is, this is MFA, this is Ministry of Finance, it's our friends at MEDI, our friends at media and our friends at MOD, and at ATLA. I would suggest that there's still no defense industrial policy. What is the defense industrial policy of in Japan? Just begin to put it out there and help industry think about that. What is it? Is it nanotechnology? Is it AI? Is it machine learning? Is it, is it cyber? What is it What is it that Japan wants to see its industries develop? And then begin to focus on that, to come in and to be able to say, okay, if you work on this, we'll subsidize it this way, or we'll, we'll go to the United States. I mean, I know that, that uh, Kuroi-san is over here quite often to talk to Bob Work about where can Japan play into that third offset policy. Everybody's excited about third offset policy, but finding a way, place and a way to plug in is going to require real leadership on the Japanese side, because these are places that Japanese industry is not you know, it's not going to be the first place or it's not the first phone call that, that a Lockheed or a Boeing is going to make saying, hey, who's our, going to be our best partner on this? So, so there's lots – there's a big role the Japanese government can play, and it's going to be much more subtle. It doesn't mean throwing a supplemental of, of 2 or $3 billion uh, at, at, uh, at IAMD. It's going to be leadership. It's going to be institutional changes, and it's going to be cultural changes. I tell
1: you what, I'm going to throw it through, through questions to the audience. From here to the gentleman in the
3: there. Uh, my name is Sam Miranda. I don't have an affiliation. I'm retired from the NRC, and um, I have a cup. I have a, first. I have a little anecdote concerning inter- intellectual property. And then I have a question. Um, I used to work for Westinghouse, and I was a, a project engineer for a, a joint development program with Mitsubishi to develop an advanced uh, reactor for Japanese utilities. And um, one day we got a report uh, from Japan that uh, Mitsubishi had filed a patent application for a design um, that was a part of the reactor vessel that Westinghouse had developed. and. Uh, one of my responsibilities was to track that down and I, I managed to get a hand drawn sketch from one of the technology transfer meetings and sent that off to Japan and got that application withdrawn uh but the question i have is um uh, as as a long time uh, engineer in in the nuclear power industry uh, i was doing analyses of uh, Accidents and accident responses in nuclear plants, and there we had a very well-defined uh, concept of risk, um, which was basically the probability of an accident times its consequences. And you talked about Mr. Pershing. You talked about uh, risk-based uh, analysis and mitigation, and and these these the same terms are used at the NRC. Um, but I would like to know how that translates to security and how it translates to vulnerabilities. Is there some kind of a database of vulnerabilities and the probabilities of these vulnerabilities existing and the consequences? And do you draw on that and to, um, and to do these uh, risk-based analyses?
0: Sure. Well, the Defense Security Service actually has a, a, a counterintelligence arm and uh... they've been in business since uh... started in nineteen ninety-three they had some details from the various uh, military departments and then it morphed into a fairly uh, robust CI uh, capability so they 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 have individuals uh... on staff that have the capabilities to identify uh, the first the first step of course is to take a look at the company's technologies what are their crown jewels and then Based on that, that discussion, then the Defense Security Service then will evaluate the, what the threats would be, what the vulnerabilities are, and actually develop some countermeasures counter as well, but based on their connections through the CI community as well.
1: That reminds me. The question I was going to ask you, Norman, just to pull back for a second, much of our discussion here about industrial security is focused on cyber and cybersecurity, but that's by no means the entire package, is it, when you're thinking about industrial security for defense firms that's, that, and situations. That's, that's
0: correct, Afka. The, there are many categories or subcategories within industrial security. There's personnel security clearances, there's uh, this physical protection of, of, of classified information, there's destruction of classified information, uh, re- reproduction of classified information, processing of classified information on, on computer systems. Uh, there's a whole gamut of of, uh, of, of, of subcategories and in many, many regulations that have to be followed.
4: Uh, advice to UNESCO, member of the uh, task force. I take a liberty to ask you a totally different question yet related to security. Uh, the, uh, the last six months a uh, very obvious need to rebuild communities where cultural heritage and natural heritage has been destroyed, Syria and all over the world. At the same time, in developed countries like United States, 5.5 million youths from 16 to 24 years old, out of school, out of job, and had been declared a national security issue. In Japan, uh, what is called Higikomori effect, 1.5 million, the same second generation is already there. My question is the following, beyond technologies, and I'm convinced it can be done, but would Japan and United States join forces and engage in restoring, rebuilding communities from Syria to Africa? Uh, in, including in, in in USA and Japan as such. There, there are many technologies. I evaluated those technologies. America has a lot of knowledge, a lot of competence, many technologies. Japan has much experience, unique in the world, to rebuild Japan, what is called cool Japan, whatever. I was involved quite a few years. So as uh, probably creating better condition for hardcore technology, high tech, and so on, would Japan consider, with United States, as a national security issue, not only in Japan, but all over the world, by working together in joint project to rebuild communities? When the, somebody visited last week Syria, Iraq, and so on, Jordan, Turkey, without rebuilding those communities in terms of jobs, education, multicultural communities. Uh, whatever technologies you offer will fail all of us. And if you go r- along the Silk Road, it, uh, what, to Silk Road, whatever, China is developing, there's a huge need to rebuild communities, uh, environment, energy, culture, make, uh, helping them work together. So to me, it's a security issue. Japan and America has, have unique potential and capabilities to do that. Uh, I would appreciate if you uh, I Apologize. I was confronted to problems of cooperation U.S. Japan. I used to be advisor to one of the presidents of a major European country. But how would you address this
2: today?
1: Steve, you want to have a shot at that one?
2: <laughs> it's a little bit off topic, but um, I, I, I would I, I would I would tell you that uh, Japan spends a lot of money on trying to uh, rebuild uh, communities around the world. Japan uh, is not. Uh, as appreciated as it should be for the humanitarian efforts uh, that it makes around the world and uh, that's unfortunate because they're one of the largest donors uh, in the world uh, to uh, things like humanitarian uh, uh, relief and disaster response and in, uh, in preserving uh, cultures around the world and, and um, I think some of this is um, I won't get terribly political about it but let's just say that I don't think Japan is properly appreciated for the role it plays around the world in that sense. I think
1: also one of the points that you touch on with your question, and you're comparing this to the One Belt One Road strategy that China has undertaken, is that China does think about the, its humanitarian missions in strategic terms, yes. Yes. as well as in humani- quote humanitarian terms, uh, or in terms of you know uh, burnishing its public image around the world. Uh, and I think there there could be an opportunity from that standpoint, in which Japan's defense export business can ride piggyback on a infrastructure export industrial strategy in which the two connect together. Because part of rebuilding communities, obviously, is not just physical infrastructure, but also making them secure against hostile neighbors or internal threats and a range of other kinds of things uh, as
2: well. I think Prime Minister Abe has has uh, made uh, great efforts recently to do this in Africa. So part of this is chasing China into Africa, but I also think that there's there's um, there, there's, a, uh, there's a there's a there's a miliarism and a and a quality of, of spirit of wanting to help that Japan uh, doesn't isn't isn't uh, well recognized. And which could
1: also work in this country too by the way,
2: for in terms of infrastructure projects.
1: Question. Uh,
5: Steve, I I want to thank you for what you the statement that you made. Uh, it I don't hear that very often enough. Being here in this country, they, they are trying to be nice to Japanese. But I think well, I am. I
2: am too. I promise you.
5: So yeah, yeah. But the the real friendship. It's the one where you can criticize each other, yes. trying to get it better. Yes. That's a real sign of a real friendship. But the things you said, probably you, you won't be able to understand Japan unless you live there for a few years. Right. Because it has a lot to do with the DNA and then, you know, you, you're gonna get that thing going. Yes. Uh, in my opinion, uh, I'm a Japan native U.S. citizen since 1986. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been here about 40, 45 years. Uh, What I'm trying to say is, uh, uh, in my opinion, Japan has made a great leap. Mm -hmm. Uh, 70 years ago, 71 years ago, they went flat on their face, Mm -hmm. as you know. Uh, since then, they have made a remarkable achievements that I respect, mm-hmm. and I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. But I have right to criticize Japan because Japan is my mother country. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, Japanese are not innovators for reasons. Uh, they are good at within that system, mm-hmm. living under that system. They're good, but if you are a nail sticking up in the air, that's not Japanese people. Right. They're, they're obedient, right. they're, uh, so you cannot be, uh, expect uh, Donald Trump like people there in Japan, it, 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 that's, that's my point. Yes. So, but anyway, <laughs>
2: I, I, hope, I, hope <laughs> I, I'm I just wanted to experience.
5: say thank no. you. <laughs> for, <yeah>. Okay, <laughs> wow. we've got
1: time for one more question to the back.
4: FNC with the United States of Africa 2017 project, and I usually will not make any comment, but since Africa was mentioned about the Japanese incursion into Africa now, we want to suggest this. Any attempt by any sector, Japan, China, whatever, or United States into Africa, which is to prop up the current government in Africa, this project will consider it a hostile heart, and it will take political action to redress it. So, in other words, Japanese coming to Africa should come with a different mindset than what has been going on
3: the last sixty years.
1: Well, here we've wound up with another <laughs> stricture with regard to global policy. <laughs> Mister He
2: enjoyed his uh, visit to Tokyo recently. So he did. Yeah. He did. That's true. Well,
1: thank you very much. I want to thank our our our, our final panelists one more time for a really fascinating and in some ways bracing uh, conversation and discussion and I thank you our audience uh, for your attendance here and for your patience for your many very interesting illuminating questions Uh, I also do want to take uh, time last few minutes to thank uh, two of our sponsors Smith Richardson Foundation as well as uh, white and case Uh, for their generous support for making this conference possible. And I also want to say that uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at more events in which we'll be able to explore the development of this U.S.-Japan defense technology, defense trade cooperation going forward. And I look forward to seeing you there next time. Thank you.